Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, one thing you might have noticed is that organizations used to be notable for their stability. You know, some of the biggest companies were well known for their established cultures, their recognizable products, and you might even say their steadfast brands. You know, going to work at one of these companies meant permanence and security. Remember that? Kind of. Yeah, kind of, right? Um, and it wasn't just that these companies were change averse. It was that change was seen as irrelevant, and was something that feels very strange today. And the idea is like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But of course, we don't live in a world that is predictable and stable. And as the saying goes, change is only or the only constant that we have. And if we aren't willing to change, then we ourselves might be on the path to irrelevance. Now, at the same time, wanting and being willing to change is not on its own going to be enough. We have to make changes in how we see the world and change our reactions to it. Now, Barry Borgerson has been helping organizations see and make the changes they need to make for some time now. Originally, getting a PhD in computer science, that's helped him see culture from a systematic perspective, which we love here at Experience by Design. Mm -hmm. Also helped him understand how an organization is a set of interconnected parts that can have a legacy framework that impedes change. Likewise, we need to create self-correcting mechanisms to help change happen more frequently in response to this rapid rate of change that we are now experiencing. Finally, we need to challenge our own perceptions and how we see the world and how that changing of perception can be the cornerstone, can be the foundation in how we create a possibility for change going forward, not just for the long term, but for every next moment. So change becomes something that we're about and not just something we aspire to be about. So we had a great conversation with Barry. We learned a lot. It was a lot of fun. And we hope you too enjoy the conversation. No, we barely know the technicalities of our own discipline. <laughs> yeah. I don't we think there's any. Up, so you're good. Yeah, there's no shot I could drag you through those because <laughs> I, I don't even know if I know them anymore. I was actually talking to a group of PhD students yesterday on some of the work that I do, and I had to talk to them about theory. And I was just kind of like, I, you know, it's like a doctor, you know, studying for their uh, boards. You learn the stuff you need to know to pass the thing you got to take, and then afterwards you look it up when you when you need to. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's been my experience. But you you have a PhD. So like we have a couple like three PhDs sitting around here. That's exciting. How about that? I know. What's like I I mean this maybe that's maybe that's the problem with the sound. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well you're the yours is in computer science. So I'm kind of curious. I, I you know, I'm a sociologist, Adam's an anthropologist. What does one do for a PhD in computer science? Like what does what does that like dissertation or final project look like? What what was what was your thing? Mine was on the design of self-repairing computers. So I actually had a research project where I built a system that would continue to run in spite of hardware failures. Wow. So that's what my dissertation was on. And then after that, I designed uh, the microarchitecture of a very successful computer. 
uh, and had some fault tolerance in it. So like, what? That, that's fascinating. And I could have used you yesterday when my work laptop stopped working. Um, what? Usually when people are doing PhDs, I don't know if it's the same in computer science, they, you know, they're looking at a career in academia, but you didn't do that, I don't think, right? You went in more into industry. Is that correct? I, I, that's right. I, but I went to a research center okay. in, in, in your neighborhood, right? In Sudbury, Massachusetts. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It was, was it a very research center. Very. Okay. It's, it's now gone. I think I, I'm pretty sure I had the only major product ever to come out of the research center. That's why it's gone. And I designed a computer there and then it was part of Sperry Uni. Sperry Univac was part of the Sperry, you know, Sperry Corporation. And they took my design and turned it into a product that made really billions of dollars for the company. And I made a few bucks on the, the patent. <laughs> what about that? What is it? What, what, they, they didn't give you some back end points on that billions of dollars. I mean, they just gave like they give you a fruit basket or something. They, yeah, yeah, they gave me. They gave me. I got five patents, and they gave me like a thousand dollars for each patent. You know, uh -huh. and, wow. and not not much money, but but I did get immediately promoted at a very young age. My early thirties got promoted into the executive ranks at the operating unit in in uh, in Univac. Wow. So they took me in there and said, this guy knows how to design computers. We better get him into the operating unit. And why, why did you decide to do a PhD? I mean, I often wonder about that myself. You know, why did I decide to do a PhD? <laughs> so like, what yeah, was it about right, you right. In, your, in your career and your schooling? It was like, I got to get like this degree to go work in industry. Yes. I was at the university, working at the university okay. in a research project and and uh, I got, got a grant. Well, three of us together got a grant and decided to, uh, it just kept coming. You know, I mean, mm. I was doing well uh, and uh, I, I was doing research, publishing research. And, uh, you know, you don't, you know, you don't take classes after you've got your master's degree. You do research. And I was doing research. So it was a matter of continuing right. writing up. Maybe my biggest challenge. Well, I had to take some minors. Right. And mm. one was in very, very wise of me to pick this. Looking forward, I picked the management of human resources. So oh, I started right. studying that early on, anticipating I'd go into a leadership role at some point, which I did quickly. The other one, I had to take two. So the other one was in statistics, which I had to go do graduate work on statistics without ever having done undergraduate work on statistics. So that was a bit of a challenge. Mm. And then I had to take a foreign language. So... I mean, almost everybody else had to take a foreign language, but I was in the College of Engineering and, you know, we were illiterate, so we didn't need to do that. Right. But finally, at the PhD level, you had to do it. So I had to go struggle through that. And they didn't count they computer didn't languages? Count, like, yeah, JavaScript or something is, is a foreign or language. Fortran or something, COBOL. Or yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. They accepted, you're exactly right. They expected, they accepted programming language as one of your two languages. You had to have two. So they accepted, you know, Algol and Fortran, those things right. back in those days. And then you had to actually go get a real one. Well, mm. I, I hate to break it to you, Barry, but you know, they were soft on us because when I got my PhD, Adam speaks multiple language. I speak one not very well. And <laughs> I, they didn't actually didn't require when I got my PhD to, to know a second language. Wow. I know. It's, it's like the kind of, you know, kind of like lack of intelligence and capability that I have. <laughs> um, it, is, it is interesting to think about, you know, it's always interesting to look at people's career journeys and, you know, I don't, I, you know, Adam's here as well. I know he has questions to talk about, 
But I think it's interesting that with the human resources angle and the, your current work as well, that in some ways, I mean, there's so much around human resources, of whether it's the right word, whether it's actually working on behalf of the employees, whether it's capable of helping organizations transform or is more responsible for organizations being more stagnant, right? And I think that, you know, as, as we delve into your work, given your early foray into the management of human resources, that kind of thread in your goal of transformational coaching through the theory, theoretical framework you've developed as kind of a way to offset the limitations of organizational culture and structure. That makes sense. Yes, yes. And of course, what's changed from the time I entered the professional ranks and now is the rate of change is just enormous now. Mm -hmm. it, it, mm -hmm. So making culture changes before you could take a long time to do it. Now you have to do it very often. Mm. So you need more systematic processes to do it. Seat of the pants techniques don't work very well anymore. I guess, and just even thinking about that, that's that's a really, I think, a fascinating point that you make there that we're seeing the the need and the and the request for organizational change more rapidly and more quickly today. What what has kind of precipitated that? Like why are we seeing this increase and in this acceleration of, of the need for organizational change? Well, it's the it's the organizational environments. The the top one, the one that's just relentlessly going to keep coming are the technologies. And, and the best the best way to view that is is the book the fourth industrial revolution by Klaus Schwab who's the you know founder and perennial chair of the World Economic Forum he wrote a book on that and he talks about all the different technologies that are coming a lot of them either based on or built upon digital technology so that's what changed the world the semiconductors digital communications computing information systems and But what he points out in that book that's so crucial is that the technologies are coming. We're very, very good at those technologies. Uh, they keep coming and leaders don't know how to handle the human ramifications of those technologies. You know, he talks about they can't do very well, not very good at non-disruptive thinking. Uh, mm. They don't know how to handle the underlying social models. Uh, the conceptual and operating models. And when he talks about all those things that leaders can't currently do very well, he gets right into the heart of what I do. And that's, that's because it's in the automatic part of the mind. Right. And there's particular, you know, certainty contextualizing mechanism in the mind that keeps that from happening very well. It makes it difficult to do. Hmm. I think, yeah, so I, I appreciate that too. And I think that it's it's such an interesting challenge that we face today. So I, I'd love to break down. So some of the, for example, like let's, uh, like I guess a couple of things. Like one is that as an anthropologist, I like to think that technology is designed to help us do things better, but that doesn't seem to be the case <laughs> um, all the time. Well, yeah, right. that's the purpose. The trouble now is it comes so fast mm. and it's not just a matter of doing things better we have to have the capacity to do things differently mm. so the technologies are designed and, and indeed usually have the capacity to make things better humans don't have the capacity to make the changes to make things better that's and what my that's, therapist was that's telling where the me challenge comes in 
That's what I got a new therapist, Barry. That's exactly what she told me on Monday. People are bad at change. Right. And I said, ain't that the truth? <laughs> and, and you know, as part of that conversation, you know, I was looking at your work. And one of the things I appreciate about everything you're talking about, well, it's a couple of things was it's very social, what we would call social psychological, right? It's that intersection of the self um, being agentic, having agency, being able to take action, but also the, the, the constraints of structure, the constraints of the environment, and also the constraints of not just the current context, but our past context, yes. right? The patterns that we have become accustomed to, which as you talk about, become automatic, they become the scripts, you know, using computer science, they become the scripts operating in the background that run the program. Right. And you might modify the, 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 like the UI, the interface, but if that script is still running the same, the program is still going to be in many ways still the same. Yes. And I often like to think about the, uh, the analogy, having a computer background between our thinking abilities and our automatic, you know, mechanisms we have with just what, just what you're saying, Gary, with, you know, the application we might have and the operating system or the hardware down there. And it just, you know, we can't change some of that stuff and we need to. Right. That's what culture change is doing. We work very well within our current operating systems, if you like, but the cultures are changing. The environment is changing so fast that we have to change at that level. And we, we're not good at that. We're terrible at it right now. Well, one of the things that reminds me of is um, the number of productivity apps I have downloaded without necessarily becoming more productive. <laughs> And I have the right. tools. I have the right. tools, right? I mean, I have these 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 Wizzy tools on an iPad, on my phone, on my computer. I can go through Teams. I can use all these Microsoft um, applications to help me be more productive. But the background script, based on all kinds of issues, personal, is you know is the issue. It's the problem. It's not right. I lack the whiteboard, or I lack the index cards, or I lack the planning tools. It's that I lack the the functioning because of the automatic scripts that are running that are the limiters on how I am able to utilize those tools. Correct. Hmm. Good insight. Well, I'm, I'm trying, I mean, you know, it's been a while, Barry. I'm trying. <laughs> I've been working on this. <laughs> and actually your work was very fascinating because it, you know, I, I appreciate it also the fact that it is self-help without being that psychotherapy kind of self-affirmation, right? And that's where the coaching comes. Mm. It's this guided right. approach of it can be too much for us to do on our own. So here's a program to help us tap into those things that are those limiters. Right. Yeah. And so do we have, I, I think that, that I agree, agreed with Gary in that point too, that I think it's, it's important, like, and even to think about this in terms of, you know, a bit about, how did you come to develop these ideas that if we have to basically help change our operating architecture and our microprocessors, um, you know, as we're having external inputs change so quickly, um, I know, tell us a bit about like how you came to this idea of the two selves and, and the different, the different forms of mind in terms of active and kind of subconscious. Okay. I, I got interested and sort of accidentally discovered there's something going on strange in the mind as a boy. And I, I can go back and, and identify some key points where things weren't making sense to me. 
I think intuitively, we think we have a uniform mind. In other words, we think about things, we can change things, we can solve problems. My, my first, if I go way back, my first insight when I was a boy, maybe 12, I don't get, get the exact time, went to the theater at a local theater where they had two shows. In between, they had a little newsreel. And I you know, went out to the snack bar, came back, and I was listening to this, and they made an interesting statement. They were talking about Niels Bohr, who had many years earlier gotten a Nobel Prize on the, on the atom. And they said he never made the same level. And then the commentator made a very interesting observation. He says, what happens? Why is it that people are very creative when they're young? And when they get older, they never, they don't make the same level of breakthrough changes. And I thought about that and I thought that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I had an informal, intuitive vision of my mind that if you get more knowledge, you get a little bit older, you get more wisdom, of course you can get more innovative. And I knew something was wrong right then. There's right. something going on in the mind. And by the way, he was right. And now I know why he was right. And then I had other instances too, where uh, I I made a commitment that I was going to do something, and I couldn't do it. Hmm. And then I asked myself, "Well, who's in charge here?" I mean, I said I was going to do it, I I committed to doing it, and I'm not doing it. So those are some of the things along the way. But the biggest thing. So what changed my career? What caused me to go from computer field executive to person developing theory on the automatic part of the mind and coaching people and changing cultures. I took over a business that was failing. And I was able to identify a very good path to turn the business around and succeed. And I articulated that path and there was some very good, very smart, very hardworking people there, even the leadership team. And they would, they would agree. They would say, yep, that's the way to go. And then you might imagine what happened. Nothing changed. <laughs> so some of them had behaviors that, that had some issues with them. By that time in my career, I knew how to change behavior. So I was able to go work with them to transform those behaviors. But at that stage of my development, I didn't understand what I model as auto context, that contextualizing mechanism in the automatic part of the mind that causes us to be certain about certain things. And in this case, about the elements of the culture, they, mm. they could hear me. The thinking part of them would say, yes, you're right. The automatic part would just keep doing the same thing. Right. Oh, mm. I actually changed that culture. Uh, that business is still running today, quite a few years later. So I was successful, but I did it in what was I knew at the time was an absurd way. I just brute forced it. I just relentlessly had to push people, relentlessly had to challenge them, day after day, week after week. And at that point, I said, "Okay, I changed the culture." It had to change because they were just watching themselves fail. They didn't recognize it, but they couldn't do anything about it. So he asked, first of all, why are they just passively working hard, but passively 
letting themselves fail. And that's a good insight into why companies fail. Right. They couldn't make the cultural changes. Mm. So I, I decided at that point to start doing research. And widespread research, not just on culture change, but on, on the mind, on how it works. Why, do, why can't people make changes when it's obvious they need to? Why right. do people have deep beliefs that are counterproductive? And I got to the point, so the, the early stages of what I call two-self theory, you know, our thinking self and our automatic self, sort of a way to represent the two modes we operate in, I decided at that point I had something that the world needed, and I made the decision to retire early from a lucrative executive career and pursue theory building. And that started me on the theory building. I was able to verify the theory was working by trying it, trying it on mm. behavior change, trying it on culture change, applying it. And verification for me that my theory was solid was when I would create a new technique, it would work out of the box. Right. So I had clients, I said, okay, now this, this is what the client's doing. This is what my theory says should be able to change them. And it worked. So then I, as I went on, I kept developing more. So I developed the automatic behavior transformation part first. And, and my recent research, my recent work, and it's, it goes way beyond business, really important stuff. It's the, the certainties we have that, you know, I like to tell people is you don't, you don't have any beliefs at all that, that are dead wrong. Do you? <laughs> Most of mine, I think are. <laughs> and and uh, at first they say no, but it's easy to get them to c convince them that they do have some certainties, some beliefs mm. that are wrong. And in today's age, we can look at it in business. They can start out with a cultural, their strategy, their mission. That's right. It, it aligns, you know, they've got it. And over time, as you get a success, it feels good. Model must work. Get another success. It feels good. Tomorrow, What happens imperceptibly? You don't notice it. It migrates from a thought, from something you wrote down to a belief, to a certainty, to an element of the culture. Then when the environment changes, what well, gets a little bit out of the line. So that it's a certainty illusion. You have the illusion that is correct because it's in that part of the mind that the certainty operates independent of whether it corresponds with facts in the world or aligns with your success needs. So, so what happens there, of course, is the environment keeps changing and pretty soon the certainty illusion becomes a certainty delusion. Right. And that's when you start failing. I find as long as I can find people on Facebook who agree with me, all my beliefs are correct. <laughs> a lot of the world actually i know you're saying that facetiously no no uh, <laughs> I got, but, I got. but there are a lot of people unfortunately doing that right now absolutely that's yeah massive, I just, I, massive problems for i just kind of go on facebook or someplace or some kind of the internet discussion group and i'm like does someone else believe this nonsense besides me yep i must be yep. right yeah, yeah, gotta and be. I, and that's, but that that is unfortunately sadly true <laughs> I, I want you know i've never been asked to lead anything 
So I'm kind of curious what it's like when someone comes to you and says, Barry, you got this failing company and we think you're the guy for it. I mean, did you know it was failing before you went in? Or did oh, you yes. Go in? oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, I was really put in there to shut it down. You oh, oh. <laughs> so you failed. <laughs> gracefully, gracefully <laughs> shut it down because it was a money eater. It was it was wrecking things. And and but it, but if I could save it. But, you know, by the way, don't just keep losing money. Right. And I got in there. And I had a good vision for where we could go. Turned out to be a good vision because we went that way and it, it, it worked. But boy, was it hard. I, you know, it's just such good visceral deep understanding of the difficulties of changing culture by watching it day to day. People agreeing. Right. Saying yes. Oh, and yeah. then not changing. It's I like, just, I just had a conversation <laughs> yesterday with somebody on campus that I ran into who I've known for many, many years. She's one of the faculty. She's also an administration. We were kind of talking about this, right? I'm like, you know, people know what they need, what needs to be done, right? They know what needs to be done and they know why it needs to be done in terms of changing. But yet when it comes to actually making changes, it doesn't happen. I, I do think at various times people decide to go to committees so that they can create the illusion of working towards change without actually having to, in fact, commit to making changes. I, that's, that's a good observation. Yeah. It's good to pretend, right? Pretend right. you're changing. <laughs> yeah. We're, no, we're, we're doing this work in committee. I'm like, why? Well, so we can talk, look at and talk about making the changes. Well, why don't you just make the changes? Well, mm. we have to first get the committee together, but why? You know what you need to do. Right. We do. But first we got to go through the process. I mean, process is a change killer. I think in many, there's often good mm. reasons to go through some process, but at the same time, I think process is a rationalization exercise for people to engage in work other than actually making changes. Yep. Often is. And mm -hmm. systems, so systems are very good at replicating themselves. Um, and so if you are, and I think this is part of also what you were writing about, if you're going in and trying to make changes, transformational changes through existing processes, good luck, because it's going to be a really difficult road to hoe, if possible at all, because those processes and systems are in place to replicate themselves, not to create transformational change. Right, right. And ch change is harder than people often think. They, and there's, there's other problems. We're all busy. And when people come forward, they succumb easily to what I call simplistic solutions. And those are solutions that, that make you feel like you're solving the problem without without actually solving the problem. So you're uncomfortable because you know in some way you're failing. Someone sells you a simplistic solution. And by the way, Gary, that's that's an example of what you were talking about. I know something's wrong. I know we need to change. Let's go have a committee meeting and then we'll come out and say, okay, we all agreed we're going to change and nothing happens. <clears throat> yeah, I, I got into trouble kind of for make for, for with a group of people for doing work that the organization said it was committed to doing and we did it and we got like pushback for doing the work that the organization said we should be about because we didn't go through process. I was like we got the result, didn't we? <laughs> yes, but you didn't you didn't go through the process. I'm like, but you know, I mean, wh which one do you want? Do you want process or you want results? I mean, let me know which because we can do one or the other. I thought we wanted results. I, that was my mistake. 
Universities turn out to be real great on process, don't they? And you're right. A, a place that should be the, the bedrock of innovation puts in a lot of process to slow it down. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting too, because there, there's, you know, even I'm thinking through, you know, the 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 love and the the frequent talk in innovation consultancies around design thinking as a process, right? And, and right. without really understanding what to I think to Gary's point and your point too, that um, oftentimes there's the results area and then there's the playbook, right? And design thinking is a playbook, right? And that oftentimes without having a deeper understanding of what would be the change mechanisms or the cultural needs behind the actual problem, following a playbook of empathizing, putting in air quotes, you know, and then prototyping ideas and then right. testing them with folks actually leads to no real change because we're just following a, the process book and that feels like we're doing the right thing. So it's it's even interesting that the the, the popular business maxims Again, one case like design thinking uh, is has become itself, I think, a kind of simplistic solution to your point, Barry, that like we'll just say this is the process, we're going to follow it, and it will work, it will lead to change. And yet it so often doesn't. Um, so even the things that feel new or that we've made it, we've picked us, we've we've picked a working process, can then can themselves become kind of ossified, right? And that they won't actually right. evolve or help us change. Right. That, these are examples of of a massive knowing doing gap. In other right. words, we, we like, we're really, really good at thinking about complex problems. So people go in and they think for the solution and they agree. So they know what to do, but doing it, <laughs> they don't know how to do it because that gets into that automatic part of the mind again. They've got, they've got this thought, this is what we should do, but they've got a belief that it's not right. They got a certainty that what they're doing is right and the certainty wins. Mm. Actually, yeah. So to tell us that that's that, so this is fascinating too. So let's think like how do we how do we dig into that idea of this difference between knowing and certainty, right? And that we know we should be doing something, but the certainty keeps getting in the way. Like what? How do we how do we see that that that's like stopping us? That's the dam that's stopping the river. Right. Okay. So there's processes for this this type of thing, of course. A, a good process I've applied to lots of people in different environments is to acknowledge. The belief, first of all, identify the belief. I've got the belief that this is so, you know, it could be a political belief, a business cultural belief. It could be a, you know, problem solving belief. And then say, okay, let's analyze whether that belief is true. So assume, assume it's a good belief now, but let's verify it. So uh, the, the, the operating principle I try to get people to focus on is believe, but verify. Okay. So mm -hmm. you can believe it, but let's go verify it. Let's let, and you'd be surprised. You get people to do it. You can do it with cultures. You can do it with their personal lives. You can do it with things. Like, I've had people do that sincerely say, okay, look at the pluses, look at what the evidence is that it's really, that belief is, is true. It's functional. It's helping. And then what's the evidence? And they, if they'll do that, it's hard to get people to do that because like, why would I challenge something that's so obviously true? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's my certainty. It's my belief. Right. I mean, I'd, but if you can get it past that and you can, then when they get through the exercise, they go through this painful process. Oh my gosh, that belief I've had for years is it true? Is it? No. Right. <laughs> someone, someone induced a fantasy for you and you, and it's in that part of your mind where you don't want to challenge it. So the first thing is you get people uh, to 
challenge their beliefs. Now, uh, when you look for non-fitting, non-fitting data, one word for that's anomalies. And that goes back to the work I do on what I, again, auto context. That's the automatic contextual mechanisms we have. You go back, the best work on that previously was Thomas Kuhn. Right. 60 mm-hmm. years ago, the structure of scientific revolution. He talked about it in terms of paradigms, which still right. exist in our language today. And he talked about the difference between normal science and revolutionary science. And his position was the way you know when you need to go through a revolutionary science process is when the accumulation of anomalies, in other words, activities, results that don't fit the former theory. And as that gets heavy enough, you say, okay, we need a new theory. And as you might expect, what happens in these things, the younger scientists catch on and they start doing it. And the older scientists, they're, they're certain they're right. And they, so it, it takes a generation sometimes to change that. Mm. But, and in science, you probably have that luxury in business. Right. You have a year maybe <laughs> and you're going to go out of business. The church, the church excommunicates you. Maybe you're burned at the cross. I mean, you know, other things, you know, maybe you don't get promotion at tenure. Right. Like, well, you didn't get this published, but it is an interesting thing about how, like, you know, going back to Kuhn's work about, you know, these shifting of paradigms. And there was another book that I read somewhat recently. uh, Basically, it was talking about how everything in retrospect is seems like common sense, but at the Mm -hmm. time, it really isn't. Right. It's it's uncommon. Right. Oh yeah. People come to accept it as being obvious, but in at the time in which it's happening, it's it's hard to accept these these perspectives, especially when it goes against conventional wisdom. One of my one of my favorite quotes to pull from is W.I. Thomas: "If people perceive things as real, they'll be real in their consequences." Not that perception is reality. I mean, you can perceive that COVID isn't real; you still can get it. You can perceive that climate change isn't real; your basement's still going to flood. Science doesn't care about your belief system, but it will impact how you act. And, right. and one of the nice things about, you know, you're drawing from the business examples and kind of like this mixing of, you know, therapeutic models with practical reality is that at some point your approach needs to yield results. And if you're operating that our product is great and no one's buying it at a certain point, you're going to go out of business. Right. The scoreboard's going to dictate how accurate that perception actually is. And they often don't get it until they've gone out of business. Then you can look back and say, "Uh Oh, right. Uh, We were wrong on that. And lots and lots of examples of those of that around. You know, this makes me wonder. uh, So like, how, how do we think about if we're, Working to put this in practice, um, and it makes sense, like in a in a coaching context, for example, right? If we're working with an organization or working with a couple, <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to, I mean, to kind of to Gary's point before, in terms of that that the Facebook and social media, and that there's there's a pervasiveness in terms of these kinds of of you know, I can have a conviction about something, and that it's uh, I can I can get my filter bubble through social media that will then feed me articles or, or put me in contact with other people that share those beliefs. Um, this is, I think this is such an interesting challenge that we're facing at this time because 
um, agreed that as technology and the environment of where we like build and perceive knowledge is changing so quickly, that it's happening in these these spaces that normally, if we're all hanging out in the neighborhood, um, you know, a hundred years ago, then that's that's basically how we that was our Facebook, right? And now today we can do that with strangers, but then have an algorithm on top of that feeding us the perspectives that we think we we want to hear. And so, on one level, that's not different from hanging out in the village and getting the same news every day, but at the same time, it's at scale fundamentally, you know, like by orders of magnitude larger in terms of how those those beliefs can shift around and move. And so I, I guess I'm thinking about this in, in this question of scale too. And like how do we how might we be able to grapple with this in, in terms of um you know as your example I like that you had to use brute force <laughs> with the original business to say, okay guys, every day let's think through what are the beliefs? Are they happening? You know, what is the what's the the functional output of this belief? Is it helping us or not? Um, is it giving us the desired goal? Uh, you know, how do we think about that at scale too? Or can we, um, you know, we're going from the human brain to the, the I don't know, the, the world brain. I'm not sure what to call the internet, <laughs> you know, um, and how we direct, how we can, can we direct thinking in, in a, in a broader scale too? I don't know if that's too big of a question, but I'm, I'm you know, maybe we need a scientific revolution is, is the question yeah, of the answer. It's a, it's a very good question. It's a base of a lot of our issues right now are digital technologies, and, they, and they've impacted us in ways that we haven't caught up with. So they impact us in a lot of good ways, but more and more some bad ways. So let's look at how they impact us in two different domains, business and our political world. In business, they impact us mainly because they drive a need for change. And it's culture we talk about, and it's your beliefs about your business model, about your strategy, and those are hard to change. So we need to train business leaders to have systems where they can challenge their own beliefs about what works or not more frequently, like not once a generation, but once a year. They impact us in a different way in the political world. And, uh, and Adam, that's what you're getting at, I think, in the bigger world, other places. And they, how they impact us there is the digital communications channels. So mm. you can look at cable television. You can look at social media, of which Facebook is certainly a big example. And what happens there is the ease in which certainty delusions mm. can be constructed. So it's easy to construct a certainty illusion. If you look at the difference between a certainty illusion and a certainty delusion, a certainty illusion is something that you believe independent of the facts in the world or your success needs. They often migrate. They get more and more out of the line. A certainty delusion is where it verifiably, you got a belief that verifiably does not correspond with facts in the world. And Sometimes in business, it migrates. It migrates from being really closely aligned to a little less, a little, very hard to detect. In the political world, we have a lot of people directly constructing delusions, hmm. certainty delusions. In other words, people are certain about something that's verifiably false. Right. So to get, to get back to your crucial question, what do we do about that? Well, in business, we need to construct a culture, a fundamental belief in the leaders and in the organization 
that part of your culture is obsolete and you're going to have to challenge it. So the mm-hmm. top level cultural element is we need to challenge our culture. We don't have that today. People right. just assume it. So mm-hmm. you have to, that's why I talk about annual meetings where you go away and challenge your culture in the political world and other worlds. We have to do the same thing, but it's a little harder. We have to, we have to construct a belief that some of our beliefs aren't right. Mm. And no one has that belief right now. So that's a new belief we need to construct. We need to, how can you do that? Well, this is the hard part. Maybe one way to do it is to start teaching that in mandatory education. Right. Easy to do, but for a lot of political reasons, people aren't going to want to do that. But there's other things we can do, by the way, in education mm. to create this automatic contextualizing mechanism in the mind. There's other things we can do there that would that would start working to get people used to the idea. One is it would really be easy to construct a mental inoculation against recreational drug use. Mm. You can you can do it. You just make it a contextualizing part of your mind that makes it uncomfortable as something you don't do. We need to do that. Now, what happens there is people are going to say, we can't be messing around in our education system with constructing that part of the mind, with constructing constructs in that part of the mind. It's all thinking self, right? We, we just have to teach them facts. We don't want to, well, that's not true. Uh, hmm. We already do that, it turns out. We, we deliberately, without understanding the process, we, the United States, we, the West, we, the whole world that has universal education, constructs an auto context, a belief in students, and we do it relentlessly. And when we recognize, we do, I'll tell you which one it is in a minute. You guys can think about what is that that we're doing all the time? Happened to you, it happened to me, it happens to our kids, grandkids, whatever we have them, you know, it happens all the time. And by the way, it needs to happen. Hmm. So what if we expand that? And what if we expand that to construct a phobia against recreational drug? Wouldn't be difficult. What if we create, and this is crucial, what if we create a mechanism for people to understand when they're being manipulated? Because it's happening right now. People think they have freedoms, but they're gone. I mean, some people have delusions constructed in them relentlessly where they believe things that are fantasies. And it's really hard to have the kind of you know self-governing systems we have mm-hmm. when people get that constructed. So we could teach people, students, we could teach adults too, but I mean, a mechanism to look for the signs of being manipulated and have means to to resist it. Well, they had the fact you know, we can see the fact that there's a collective delusion around a fantasy of a future that'll never be accomplished in just New York Jets fans. I mean, the fact that people perpetually are New York Jets fans or even Detroit Lions fans, mm-hmm. um, you know, that this is a year, this is a year. And I say that tongue in cheek, but the reason why they're called fans is that it's short for fanatic, right? <laughs> and that in order to be part of the group, one has to engage in the activity without questioning or you can question within parameters that don't threaten the stability of the group, which goes back to this point 
that companies, cultures, groups, schools, whatever, don't actively question to the point of threatening the very premises on which they're built. Right. Right. Those, those questioning behaviors aren't foundational. They're peripheral. We can, we can tinker around the edges, but we can't like in higher education, just the very notion of the structure of the thing itself and how it's constructed is not on the table. What is on the table is, well, maybe we should tinker with what classes are required. Maybe we should you know, tinker with what majors we have. Maybe we should tinker with um, hybrid majors or all these other things, but the foundation of it is not touched. When in fact, transformative change happens, like going back to Kuhn, when those foundations are brought into question. That's right. You're exactly right. And it, mm. you're in the business, you, you, you teach in the business school. And if we need to start creating business leaders that are transformational, mm. that understand how to challenge basic assumptions know how to go in and do that when they when they come out of business schools or when they're in business schools you know part of they're already in the profession learn how to transform cultures because the world of success in business is going to belong to leaders who are transformational who know how to make transformations in the culture one of the things that adam and i've been working on um if anybody's interested call us is if, and I've talked with business students at, at the exec ed level, at the undergraduate level, at professional development, whatever. No organization really does professional development on critical thinking. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist. They just don't do it. Um, yet they want to talk about, we want independent people to you know, be free thinkers, to critically engage. Well, do you teach people how to critical think? Do you have professional development opportunities in that? Nope. So Adam and I have been you know, working on a, a model of doing that kind of work in organizations to get at what you're talking about, because, you know, it's students often come to school looking for skills, skills training so that they can get employed, not understand that skills they need, as you just mentioned, Barry, are these transformational skills to, to be the change, to embrace the rapidly evolving environment in which they're going to be living and working. Mm. Oh, you're muted. So Gary, or, yeah, Barry, sorry, your sound turned off. Yeah, Barry, your sound turned off. You're not muted though. It's 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 weird. He's unplugged. Okay, sorry. There back you now? Go. Yeah, you're back. Yes. I th- I think I apologize. Like my elbow hit the uh, a button on my <laughs> on this <laughs> thing. <great. laughs> sorry. Technology out to get us. They knew we were on to right. something. All right. So what were you saying when you cut out? Oh, I don't know. I don't know where I cut out. Tell me what you heard last. <laughs> we like after after Gary said the thing about critical thinking. We didn't hear anything that you said. Yeah. Well, crit- critical thinking is something actually the actual thought processes, complex thoughts we do pretty well. The problem comes is when we have to change the assumptions on what we're thinking about. Like like Kuhn's revolutionary science. He, he by the way he just focused on science. The modeling I do on that part of the mind goes way beyond science. It goes to business cultures. It goes to political manipulations. It right. goes to values. Mm. And you, you expand it, and it goes to not just problem solving, but cultures. There's different, different aspects. So critical thinking is something we, we can do well within the framework that we were enculturated into. 
It's when we want to do thinking outside that that makes it so difficult. Hmm. And that's interesting because I mean, even thinking about it that way, uh, I think illuminates why traditional business education has like it feels threatening to talk about critical thinking almost, right? Like let's because it is on one level that's a form of questioning the assumptions about how we do business and how business is traditionally taught. And so I, yeah. I think that this is this is interesting because I'd not thought about there's like this little connection that's happening in my brain with this too that mm-hmm. um, that it is getting to the point of what are the assumptions of how how we're educated right. um, in these different spaces and and so it's like it's a great point that critical thinking works in context but when we have to then say actually what we mean is to apply that outside or like critically look at the assumptions that you have that are based on that that's where it, it gets hard right and people don't want to challenge their assumptions because they're certainties, right? They're beliefs. It's mm. to them, it's it's the way the world is. Like, why would I challenge total reality? This is the world. But we need to do that. So challenging the assumptions, challenging the framework is something that uh, everybody in a leadership position and in many positions, voters need to do. <laughs> yeah, You need to challenge some assumptions. Right. Mm. My, I'm, I'm, my guess is that your answer is more specific than this, but I'm, I'm wondering back to your point. You said there's something that our educational system does that that frames and in, in that that points towards us. But what um, uh, that says we can't tinker with auto context, but it does it relentlessly. And um, is I don't know. My my thought with that is that what it does is it tells us that we never tinker with the auto context system, but that's all we do. Um, <laughs> right. I think your answer right. is more specific than that, but like, what, what is, you said there's, there's something that you'd say that, that our education system does all the time. What is, what is that? Yes. That yes. I, I, I was wondering if you could think, think of it. It's kind of hard. We're in the middle of a discussion. Yeah. There's something we do. We construct an auto context, a belief, a mm. certainty, and it has to do with patriotism, right? Sure. Mm. Of course. That yep. is the glue that holds societies together. The first thing I thought of, Barry, honestly, was declaration. We have every day when we do the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. That's a yep. piece of it. Yeah, you know, we, you know, we we have these statements, you know, with justice and freedom for all. Right. All men are created equal. Mm. We have all these things. We have the Pledge of Allegiance. We have the national anthem. We have these things we do relentlessly, relentlessly, and that constructs an auto context. It's a belief, and we we societies need that because that is the mental glue that holds societies together. By the way, you know, it's also, it's always specific, right? I'm sure mm. the Chinese have the same, <laughs> they have a very different version, well, but you it's know, what holds societies together. It's really funny you mentioned that. One of the classes I teach is something called sociology of sports. And often when I've taught it, I've had international students in there uh, with American students. And the international students are always kind of shocked by the extent to which patriotism <laughs> is intermixed with sports and mm-hmm. from, from, you know, in other countries, like, you know, maybe before like a world cup soccer match, you'll have the national anthems of the countries and the flags, but you aren't going to do it before an English premier league game. You're not going to do it just before any kind of professional sporting event or even a little league event. And American students are often shocked to think about, you know, the military flyovers, the, the mm-hmm. national anthem, the stand, you know, before the game is played, all of these things that they just, just come to accept yep. is just what you do. And international students would say, yeah, no, we don't do that. That's kind of weird. And <laughs> they've never seen as many flags fly in a country as in the United States. Right. So again, not, 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 not placing a value judgment on it. Right. 
as you said, there's many reasons why that's, you know, part of part and parcel of constructing this identity. But it is an interesting distinction that we have in terms of how we treat our our model of patriotism and not accepting that there's other models that can also be right, right. Because it's the nature of the auto context again. Right. It's obvious that's the way the world is. You know, right. It's obvious we're the best in the world. And that's true for every country. <laughs> Mm. Or every culture. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think like, um, I think like I, I'd love to, to then do a little, a little breakdown here. I know we're getting closer to time. So I'll be, I'll be, I'll be conscious of that. No one to steal. Don't want to steal all your time today. Um, although I totally would, this is, this is great to, to think through. Um, and like, as, as Gary and I's ethnographer brains are just spinning, because, you know, so much of, of the work of social science too, is to, have to understand the context in which you know people are coming from, and that if we are to, you know, have what we might call cultural relativism in, in ethnography in terms of not prejudging a, a group of people or, or you know a community that we're working with, and understand their own internal logic systems from their perspective, you know, that's kind of a, a fundamental maxim. This is interesting because we're we're kind of talking in that area, but at the same time, when we recognize that assumptions do not work or they are like either counter to actual facts or that they are um, causing a business to fail or they're, they're um, invisibly driving a wedge, you know, in polarizing communities um, around politics, for example. So this is, it's a really interesting space to, uh, to say there is some uh, important work. I mean, there's this key important work to do that, that we have to do this uncomfortable work of looking at and thinking about our assumptions about how the world works. And so I think one of the things that I enjoyed you know, kind of reading about the work that you do is that some of the, the ways you help organizations or, or clients in your processes do this is by making them intentionally uncomfortable. Right. Um, <laughs> and I want to hear a bit about that in terms of what does that look like? Um, what, what is the mental poking with a stick that you might do, for example, that, uh, that gets people to say, oh, yeah, wait, I need to like, it's like the, the initial dislodging of the belief. To say that, you know, adding a bit of opening the door a little bit to say, let's think about that. Like, this is a belief. Let's recognize that as a belief. Um, what does that look like? Well, here's some things. Have, have typically attacking a culture, trying to change a culture, good to get the senior leaders together. Hmm. Because cultures are, it's shared it's share beliefs, right? That's why it's a culture. Everyone shares. It's, it's obvious. If it's obvious, obvious to you, that's one thing. When it's Everybody agrees it's obvious. Then it's even mm. more powerful. So one thing to do is bring in executives, make them come in with some basic assumption. Here's something we all agree with. Of course, it's true. We all believe it. And then you have to challenge it. Openly challenge it. What are some counter facts to that? And then support it. Here are the facts that support it. Here are the facts that say maybe it's not true. And that's a painful process. Mm. Uh, people don't want to challenge their beliefs. So changing cultures, changing beliefs, business culture, other kinds of you know, self-image, <laughs> uh, mm. cha changing those things is difficult for two reasons. First one is people don't have any interest in challenging their beliefs. Right. Only, right? I mean, it's yep. just obvious. It's, it's the way the world is. I'm certain. The second thing is that comes up. When, if you get to the point where you say, okay, I found enough anomalies, I think that belief is not true anymore. 
okay, now you've got a thought. It's like when I was in a business I took over, I got them all to understand they were on the wrong path. That was at the thinking self level. At the auto self level, they didn't change. So the second part, after you come to the conclusion, it's the, it's the knowing doing. Now you know you, you've got it wrong. Now you have to go through a process. And that process is uncomfortable and you have to just keep forcing people to face it. We do the same thing in, in behavior change. In behavior change, people want to keep doing the behaviors they did before. Either they keep procrastinating on something or they keep bullying people or micromanaging. And you have to, what it's like, it's what I call, you know, the counteracting principle. You have to counteract the feelings that are, that are driving that. Or it's a, a specific example of that. It's the path of least discomfort. In other words, you make it more uncomfortable not to change the behavior or the culture than it is to mm. change it. And so, yeah, it's so, whereas in our thinking stuff, thinking mode, it's knowledge. We read, we listen, we watch, we gather knowledge. That doesn't change the automatic mode. That doesn't change the auto self. That's repetition and feelings. And both positive feelings, you make the new behavior, the new belief feel good, and you make the old one feel bad. And you do that repeated enough times, it rewires you. It's, that's the nature of what a, a transformation is, as opposed to learning something new. It sounds a lot like recovery work, quite frankly. I mean, I mean, honestly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you ever watch like, you know, the TV show Intervention, which I'd like to watch because it makes me feel slightly better about myself because... Things might be bad, but they're not that bad. Um, you know, where the family has to come together and decide they're no longer going to support the behavior that is counterproductive. And the person, the person wants to maintain that behavior, which is not healthful, helpful, you know, productive, yes. Yes. then they have to do it on their own. And, and you have to make that, that behavior, the maintenance of that behavior more uncomfortable than the adoption of a new behavior. Perfect example. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. so Barry is doing organizational interventions. Mm -hmm. That's a new TV mm -hmm. show. I think we should probably sell That's that. That's a great idea. I'd, I'd watch that. Yeah. I'd watch that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> or, or challenge, challenging your certainties. That's a, that's, that's a real interesting thing. Learning to challenge your certainties. And we need to do that. We need to do that in a lot of environments and we're not good at that yet. So there's something, uh, a challenge for all of us to work on. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, so, kind of as 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 a as a general a wrap up idea. So, a, a bit about like where folks can find you in terms of the the kinds of services you offer too. Because I think this this is this is super fascinating, and I, I've had such a fun time. I would totally keep talking to you for the next set of hours, but um, we'll have to do a sequel episode. Um, but I, I think you know. So, where where can can folks find your work? And um, you know, is there anything else that if 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 folks are coming to you, this this way of thinking for the first time, you know, what's what's kind of the key first thing? that you want them to know about, about your work? The transformation will changing is possible and not easy. And that if they're looking for a coach, there's a, so several things they should look for. One, some coaches are advisory coaches. So if you're looking for information, that's one type of coach. If you're looking for a transformation, a behavior, a cultural element, then you want to find a transformational coach. And that changes what you do automatically that you really, you would find it very difficult most of the time 
to change on your own. Mm. Okay, that's a, that's a great thing to know too. So, uh, the, so a key point too, because I think we see a lot of coaches and coaching out there in the world as services, but I think that this is a fundamental difference that that's I think key that I want to highlight for listeners too is this idea that advisory coach is often informational, which you'll see will help you think about the next thing. But if you actually want to do change work, um, it's it's an uncomfortable coach. <laughs> right, right, that's right. It is. You, you will yeah. you will experience discomfort and come out where you want to be with your life. But mm. and by the way, it's that discomfort that makes most self-help programs not work. Sounds good. Mm. They've got a process and you start getting uncomfortable. Just better to quit, right? It's just easier to mm. quit. A coach moves you through that discomfort. Got it. Cool. That's great. That is great, uh, Barry. Yeah. Th thanks so much for taking the time and we'll have, uh, all your material in our show notes for people who get yep. in touch with all their, all your written material. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you about your, your theory into practice, which is often a gap that academics um, don't recognize that theories can be translated into practice to test them, to see how they work. And, and all the, all the examples that you provide on, you know, on, on your written materials at your website that show the ways in which your approach works. So we really appreciate you taking the time. Gary and Adam, I want to thank you both. Great questions, uh, great uh, observations about uh, some of my my practices and theory, and appreciate very much you spending the time with me. Uh, very, very well, very well done. Cool. We want to thank Dr. Barry Borgerson, President and Chief Transformation Officer at Two Selfs Incorporated, for taking us through his transformational framework on how to make change happen. Now, if you would like to see more of his work as well as reach out to him for coaching and change help, you can find links in our show notes. Now, we're curious as always, how do you think about change? And the idea is that how we approach the idea of change not only shapes our beliefs and actions, but it also shapes our perceptions and our attitudes and how we approach things. So in what ways do you think that change can be made easier, made more agile in an unpredictable world? You know, or how would you redesign your own operating system? I love this idea and this question. Join us a message for the conversation over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or hop into the conversation on our LinkedIn page. And as always, we couldn't do this without your continued support for the podcast and we sure do appreciate it. Make sure you keep your contributions coming and that can be your ideas as well as your financial support, as well as sharing the podcast with others. You can always make a contribution to supporting the cost of the podcast through our website over at experiencexdesign.com. And if you want to share any feedback with us directly, you can always send us an email at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We always like hearing from you. We like hearing about your guest ideas, your thoughts on the episodes, and just what you like about listening to Adam and I. Finally, if you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, head over to our website to stay on top of the EXD news. And with that, Hope everyone's doing well, be safe, be kind, and be here for the next Experience by Design.